Welcome to the pod, everyone. A shout out to SGS. Hey, Rusty, why are we uh, partnering with SGS? Uh, uh, some, some, some good people there. Pretty excited about their sports coaching courses and sports courses. Keen to make them industry ready so when people leave, they're able to go and transfer it to any kind of industries, coaching, teaching, being an analyst, business, whatever it might be. So I think, uh, yeah, I think it's pretty exciting times, really. So what's so special about their degree courses that others won't be doing? I think it'll be lots of uh, real good partnerships, uh, opportunities for people to, to get into different contexts and learn and practice. It'll be feel very applied. People will be stretched and supported and will leave you know, ready to just go and thrive in the uh, big old world out there. SGS College is the home of Bristol's higher education sports programmes. The programmes are designed to develop unique, innovative and creative sports practitioners ready for industry. Do you want to be a coach or teacher of the future? Start your journey here at SGS College and become more than just a graduate. Visit sgscol.ac.uk to apply. Okay, live on the pod, Rob Townsend, live from 90 minutes south of Auckland. How are you, mate? Good, thanks. How are you? I'm good, I'm cool. Well, a little bit, you know, the world's crazy and it's definitely disrupted my thinking a little bit, but uh, I'm all right and, and thanks for asking. Um, look, awesome to have you on the pod. Um, I didn't get the joy of uh, watching you deliver the other day, but uh, Dr. Ed Hall has given you a big shout out, so so I reached out. Um, we both kind of did bits on the WRU uh, inclusivity and disability conference the other day and be part of your expertise so well do you want to give a quick uh, catch-up on how you ended up in a what looks like a really nice apartment in uh, New Zealand well I, I ended up over here because I couldn't get a job anywhere else in the world um, so I had to move 20,000 miles to get a job um, but yeah yeah basically so my my I'm a lecturer in in coaching and pedagogy here at the University of Waikato and um, finished my PhD at Loughborough in 2018. Um, and I just, I'd, I'd always had one eye on coming back out to New Zealand um, back in 2012. Um, at the end of my master's, I came over here for a cricket season um, and I coached for six months down in Christchurch. So, so I always had one eye on coming back over here um, and managed to, to land a pretty decent spot here in Hamilton. I say decent, it's wet, it's cold, it's windy right now. Um, so yeah, that's it. That's where I am. And cold for you is seven degrees, which is well. I've gone, I've gone soft since I moved to the to New Zealand. Nice. And, and what? And what? So what came before? So uh, what came before your masters? Um, so I trained to be a PE teacher at Sheffield Hallam, um, and that's kind of where my my interest in the whole inclusive coaching, inclusive um, sport sort of peaked. Um, and then at the end of my PE teaching degree. Um, I kind of switched to focus, switched focus and went to, to Loughborough to do a master's in sport coaching. Um, but it was back in my, my undergrad degree um, where I, I think I went on a, I was on a coaching placement with Notts County Cricket Club um, in their community department. And I got kind of thrown into a, I think it might have been a four week club disability coaching program. Um, and they asked me if I'd go along and I was kind of Oh, okay, sure. Um, let's let's go with it. Um, thrown in at the deep end. I was told that I was going to have a, a mentor coach with me. Um, they never showed up. Um, and I think, uh, like a lot of disability sport, there wasn't very much information that went out to the community about these opportunities. So not very many people showed up. I think I had two 
two participants who came to the first week. Uh, and like I said, the, the more experienced coach didn't show up either. So that's, um, that's how I sort of ended up in that area. And I kind of bumbled my way through that first hour with those, those two lads. Um, and I came out of, out of the session thinking, what have I done there? That was terrible. Um, I've no idea what I'm doing. Um, and I don't really want to do that again. Um, so I kind of pushed that to the side um, and never, I think I did two more sessions um, where eventually it started to click for me, um, but I was still really reluctant. And, and once those, those sort of sessions ended, um, that was my involvement in disability sport over. And then I started getting into sort of the mainstream side. Um, particularly when I went to Loughborough, I got involved with the, the MCCU, um, which was the kind of the performance university side uh, at the university. Um, I only got back into disability sport when I started my PhD at Loughborough in disability sport. So I figured that I'd actually, I better jump back into that, that arena. Nice. And when you, after that first session you did, uh, when you thought it had gone terrible, what have I done type stuff? Why? What was the stuff you were thinking about or feeling? Well, for me, it was, I'd never had any exposure to disabled people in general. Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't know very many people who had an impairment. I'd never been taught how to coach um, athletes with impairments. And so when I find out that I was on my own with these two lads who kind of presented with these quite complex needs, and I'd not really planned anything, so I kind of expected that the more senior coach would arrive. So it's just this, this whole, what on earth do I do with these, these two lads? And I, it's this idea of, you know, improvising on the spot, trying to work out what it is they can do, what their previous experiences of being coached and playing cricket was. Um, and to be honest with you, I, I think I've blanked, blanked that memory out of my, my mind because I can't remember too much of it. And I just remember thinking at the end, I've given those lads a pretty poor experience. And I think it was no, I don't think they came back the week after. No wonder really. Um, but yeah, just that whole, I don't know what to do. So I don't have any kind of structure or plan to what I'm doing. I've not got really any experience of, of adapting my practices uh, or differentiating my practice to, to people who've got um, sort of specific or concentrated needs um, and generally just a general uh, lack of willingness to engage with with that um, and that kind of prompted a, a deeper level of reflection and it's like well why why do I feel like that um, and I guess my uh, what I landed on was I'd had no exposure and I'd had very little training and support to work with those uh, different kind of populations or, or athletes with more specific needs um, and that's where my interest in, in research in disability sport really came from. Because um, so I thought, you know, there has to be a better way to promote coaches working with disabled athletes. Because ostensibly, my lack of knowledge, my lack of skills, my lack of um, willingness to engage with these groups was a barrier to those people who just simply wanted to play cricket. Um, and when you, when you superimpose those kind of social barriers on top of somebody's impairments, that's when you start to become quite disabling. Um, and that's where my interest in disability sport and disability sport coaching really came from. You know, how can we expose those kind of disabling aspects of a coach's practice? Nice. And um, the deep reflection uh, would definitely exist if I would coach a couple of people and they didn't come back. I actually thought the story was going to go like you were like Peter Pan and those two people invited some more people and, and it grew and, you became this kind of rock star. What, what do you wish you'd known? What, what's the, and I guess, yeah, I mean, what four or five things you think yeah, this would be really useful for people to understand whether they're working with people with disability or actually just generally around differentiating and creating 
meaningful individual experiences for people? Yeah, good question. Um, I wish that I had um, had the foresight to um, get a decent understanding of the groups that were, were potentially coming to the session. So something that I talk to a lot of coaches about is, you know, can you, can you generate as much information about your participants as possible? Because when you're in a group, when you're in a, a disability context, you're, you're with a group who've got a, a really concentrated set of needs and you need to be really responsive to that. Um, and so um, I would have tried to draw on as many um, people as possible. And actually one of the best sessions I did was when I, and it sounds stupid, but I actually spoke to the player um, and I asked him, you know, what's your previous experience in the sport? What can you do? You know, what level of function have you got? And this lad that I was working with, he was in a motorized wheelchair um, and he had very, very limited function, but he could use one of his arms. So all it needed was, you know, a little bit of a tweak and adaptation to the equipment. He just used a smaller bat, a bigger ball, um, and we just adjusted the size of the space in which we were working. And then together we co-constructed those goals. So for me, it would be try and get as much of an in, much information as possible about the groups who are potentially coming to your session. What kind of um, networks can you draw upon to um, provide information about those? So if you're, let's say, if you're going into a special educational needs school, can you reach out and speak to those teachers, speak to the people who are working with those people one-on-one, -on -one, and just get a decent understanding of what kind of triggers there might be if you're working with people with um, uh, intellectual disabilities or neurodevelopmental disabilities, what kind of in physical impairments might present, um, and what kind of reasonable ad adaptations can you make? So have you got um, adapted equipment that you can take with you? Um, and it sound, that, again, it sounds really simple, but it's really not that scary once you're in there and once you've got a level of um, preparedness and, and planning. Um, I think as well, my second, I guess my second or third uh, tip would be patience. Take some time to get to know them. Take some time to co-construct the goals with those athletes. So, you know, what, what is it you want to actually achieve out of these three weeks that we've got together? You know, what can we meaningfully achieve? You know, are you going to be able to master the skill in, in two weeks or can we just focus on one thing for three weeks and gradually build up? Um, and that's something that was kind of, if I fast forward to my involvement, so um, I went from that kind of lowly community coaching um, space into working with the England Learning Disability Cricket Squad as, a, as an assistant coach. Um, and that's what we would do. We would spend six months working on the same skill, um, just repeating and embedding those skills and then taking them and applying them into a game context and then revisiting them. So, you know, we found, and that's with, with learning disabilities. So we found that um, patience was a big thing there um, and taking our time. Um, and I think just when I talk to coaches, I talk about this lens of adaptability. You know, can you go, what, when you go in, what things can you change in your session? You know, have you got a plan B, C, D? Um, and how willing are you to use those? So, and I guess the final thing uh, that I would ask coaches to reflect on, um, and this is not necessarily a practical tip or a, um, yeah, it's not a practical tip, but it's, I'm, I, I want to ask coaches, what do you know? What do you, what do you mean by disability? Um, so when we say that word, how do you understand it? Um, and for me, part of my work in coach education or in disability coach education is about introducing um, models of disability to coaches. Um, and there's a medical model, which suggests that um, a disabled person is disabled by their impairment, whereas a social model um, suggests that um, it's society which disables people with impairments. And that's got quite profound uh, impacts on those who are working with people with impairments. 
So in an example I'll give you, um, I used to work in a disability talent development centre um, when I, I was head coach of that centre when I was doing my PhD. Um, and a lad came to my session and he had, he had no arms, so nothing below the, the elbow. Um, and we were doing a fielding session. And my initial thoughts when I saw him was, you know, what on earth are you doing here? How are you going to play cricket? And I thought, okay, let's just get on with it. And we came to a, a fielding session. And again, he came, it was his turn. And all we were doing, I was just hitting the ball and they had to catch it in front of their face and throw it back to me. Super simple, super easy. And it was Kieran's turn, he's a young lad. Um, and I just froze. In that moment, he stood, he stood ready to catch this ball. And I had the ball in my hand, the bat in my hand, and I froze. And it felt like probably two minutes, but I think it, may, it might have been four or five seconds. Um, and eventually I just tapped the ball and it rolled to him. And he just bent down, scooped it up in his arms, and he kind of cradled it in the crook of his elbow and launched it back at me. And that kind of, the look of disgust that he gave me kind of prompted this kind of deep level of reflection again. And I thought, you know, in that moment and in that interaction, the only thing disabling that lad was me and my assumptions about him. And that's the distinction between a medical model and a social model. And that social model allows me to really reflect on the disabling aspects of my practice. And what I didn't know, because I hadn't taken the time to understand him and get to know him, was that he was wearing a padded top underneath his cricket top. So what he would do, he would just wear the, the ball on his chest, roll with it, and then throw it back. And he really, really challenged my assumptions about his possibilities because my assumptions about him were so limited by the word disability and by the fact that he had no arms. So I think that there's this kind of preconception that comes with disability that it's um, deficiency, it's um, going to be really difficult and that they're going to be really constrained by their impairment. That's absolutely not the case. You need to take, you need to take your athletes on a case-by-case -case basis and get to know them. Uh, what else have you learned about yourself during this? Uh, coaching journey so far. It's a great question. Um, Only because I mean, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, and I, I would like to go back through this stuff, but that is a profound thing. Uh, I actually think that's true of most people. Coaches coach. I think we are often the person limiting their possibility um, for various, you know, for, for various reasons. One of which is physical impairment. Yeah. I've spoken to a lot of coaches in my research and they say that working with people impair with impairments is probably one of the most um, valuable learning experiences that they can do because, like I say, their needs do challenge your skill set as a coach in various ways. So um, one of the biggest challenges I had when I was working with the, the learning disability squad was my communication style and the words and the language that I was using. Um, and you'd very quickly work out if the players didn't get what I was saying because obviously what I wanted to achieve wasn't happening. Um, and, the, and they would be very, very, they were very quick to say, we don't know what you're on about here, Rob. Um, can you simplify it? And that was, a, that was a really useful reflective tool for me because I could really work on my communication skills, my use of metaphors, my use of analogies. Um, the, the, I think you, you talked about it in your, your keynote. The, the By the way, I'm really stressed now that you watched me present. Because I, I was listening I was listening attentively, yeah. yeah. But you, you talked about your feedback and you say, you say nice a lot. Um, and there's kind of that, that deluge of, of useless feedback that coaches can give. And I quickly learned what was valuable and what was not valuable with these players, the idea of overload. Yeah, nice. 
Um, whereas working with athletes with physical impairments places a greater demand on your flexibility and your, adapt and your adaptive adaptation, your lens of adaptability. Um, so those are the things where disability can, can kind of challenge your skill set and your knowledge as a coach. Yeah, I love, um, and that's a great question actually around, you know, which, 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 which of your feedback was the most valuable today is actually something for coaches to consider because, yeah, look, and I'm, I'm definitely now, I'm listening to you talk and I'm thinking, trying to think back to my presentation going, God, I hope it was okay. Um, but that was definitely something I've learned from players. And I love, you know, the, the reality that you had some players that were willing just to go, Rob, we don't understand what you're saying. Uh, I know plenty of players that, you know, and, and possibly by their environment that just wouldn't, that just wouldn't feel able to be able to do that. And that's, that's pretty important for you as a coach. It's definitely going to make you uh, more skillful. Yeah. And it's about, I think as well, part of that was about establishing a safe environment for those players to actually open a dialogue with you as a coach. Um, we tend to find that in a lot of coaching settings and a lot of coaching interactions, it's very top down. You know, there's a very, I'm the coach, I'm the one in charge. Whereas I think in a disability setting, you need to make that relationship a lot more equitable and you have to involve them as well as their support network in um, the conversation. You know, again, working with that England squad, we would have a constant dialogue with the players' parents as well as the players um, to build a better contextual understanding of who they were. And I think ultimately that, that combined with a, an environment that had routine, it had clear and consistent messages, it had a lot of contact points with coaches, that enabled them to actually feel free to speak up and say, look, we don't know what you're on about here. Whereas if you take, and that was a really privileged position, right? That's an, that's an elite disability sport environment. Whereas if you take a community sport environment, which is typically underfunded, you might be on your own, you might have 35 athletes all wanting your attention. That opportunity for dialogue might not always be there, but that's a, a consequence of the kind of the broader sport system and the lack of support for disability sport generally. How did you... Um... How did you work with other countries in the England environment? So clearly, you know, you talk about a clear and consistent messaging. I mean, that would be something that's important anyway. And I, I would talk a bit, and I possibly mentioned it the other day, but about co-coaching as well. So how intentional would you be around that aspect of, of coaching? Yeah, very intentional. So as a coaching staff, um, we also, we had a, a social worker who was our team manager and he had a lot of input into getting the routine of the coaching environment really well set up um, and he would establish lines of communication between the players the parents and the coaching staff um, obviously the head coach who I've got a lot of respect for Derek Morgan he um, he was very good at setting out our training camp routines um, our focus for the for the week and how that links into our broader focus over the competition cycle over the six months and then we had Tom Flowers, who was our assistant, assistant coach, and he took the lead in, our, in basically our coaching practice, and I was kind of his assistant in coaching practice. And he was brilliant at breaking down the actual coaching sessions into clear and repeatable um, coaching cues, uh, demonstrations, um, and, and kind of what he was really good at. And again, you mentioned it in your, um, in your keynote, was getting players to work with each other and to give each other feedback. So we, I think I would say that we were very intentional. I was another pair of hands in that environment. But gradually, they, they trusted me to, to work more closely with the players, which was nice. Um, but yeah, the, the coaches were very, very intentional about what messages were delivered when and how. Um, and that was really, that was kind of the basis for our, our planning cycle. 
and what what feedback did you get about how, uh, your most valuable feedback so <clears throat> if if you look back on that time when did you know when did the stuff you did have impact with the players yeah with the players um i was with them for two years and i would say that as my involvement in the in the squad grew um my relationship with the players changed and they began to see me less as just another pair of hands to throw a ball at them and more as kind of a trusted voice to give technical input and that was nice that was nice when they would start coming to me and they would seek out my opinion they would seek my um my kind of feedback on their on their on their technique and all that kind of stuff the most valuable um the most valuable bit of feedback i got was from one of the older players who said you don't need to treat me like a kid because um, I think I was I was kind of falling into the trap of speaking very slowly and speaking very um, simply to him. And he was like, you don't need to treat me like a kid. I know what you're saying. Let's get on with it. Um, and that was actually quite a bit of an, again, another wake-up call where it's like, well, my assumptions about this player's impairment kind of overrode my coaching, the, the athlete in front of me. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's, again, very valuable. Well, it sounds like you've had some good deep reflection moments from... Uh from these experiences. I'm loving the honesty of players. It's, uh, I mean, well, I don't know if I was any good. I, you know, I can talk about this stuff now. I don't know if I was any good. Um, but I, I, always, I was always willing to learn. Um, but it's nice to take these kind of, there's a lot of um, sharing of ideas in, in coaching. And I think what a lot of para coaches find valuable is that um, they can share ideas. And there is no right way of doing it. You're going to get it wrong. Um, and that's fine. That's fine. Yeah, and also the vulnerability of someone who's coached internationally and is still able to tell the story of when the, you know, the kid turned around and said, "Rusty, that's the worst session I've ever done." You know, that's that's a strong piece of feedback. Definitely some deep reflection following that. I just want to. So the stuff you you spoke about. So I mean, for me, would apply as as I know you you know would apply across all coaching like. What do you do before? How do you get to know people? How do you co-construct stuff? What equipment do you take? Like, we're obsessed with, well, the kids need to get to a size five rugby ball as soon as possible. Like, they've got diddy little hands. Like, it might not be the most appropriate piece of equipment. And for the best cricket batsman, it, the most appropriate bat might be a stump. You know, or I think I showed the video of England touch where we play with that ball and just takes away the limitations of skill and, everyone is suddenly involved off the ball and just a simple, you know, or in cricket, if you take away the stumps, it creates a completely different situation. Um, mm. The second one, patience, like, I love what you said about, well, let's find stuff that's meaningful to them, uh, meaningful goals, you know, um, that's why I love the video game design stuff. I love levels, actually, as people are able to see progress and, you know, maybe we use clickers and, but they can see themselves becoming more and more competent at something. And, and I love what you said about them, peer-to-peer -peer stuff, because that's that sense of belonging, I would imagine, especially when you're talking about, you know, some of the societal impacts upon people, actually. If they find a place where they belong, then God, I've got goosebumps on my arm just talking about it, quite frankly. Yeah. Um, and all of that would you know, be across all coaching. The, the, then you spoke about, like, the lens of adaptability. Um, I, once again, I think not enough coaches are thinking about... Uh, it sounds like your experiences have created situations where you're thinking, OK, 
I need to adapt now. Why do I need to adapt? What, what options do I have and which one am I going to take and why? I think often we're kind of, we're just surviving. <laughs> we're getting through the lesson plan as, as quickly as possible. Give, give me some examples of when you've gone, I need, to, uh, I need to abandon ship here pretty quickly. I need to change some stuff up. What's, uh, what's, coming, to light, what's coming to your mind when you're thinking of that? Um, that takes me back. So that's mainly um, working in the talent development center because so the ECB has got a really well, really well resourced and really well funded performance pathway for disabled athletes. They've got a, a county game for um, disabled cricketers and then that it then splits off into various performance teams. So they've got a, a visually impaired team, a deaf team, a physical impairment team and a learning disability team. Underneath all that, they have various regional talent development centers. So um the one that i headed up in loughborough that was open to potentially we had players come in from with sensory um, impairments deaf and blind um physical impairments and developmental uh, so neurodevelopmental disorders like autism as well as learning disabilities so you've got a really concentrated set of individuals with very diverse needs and so i Initially, when I, when I was first asked to take on the, the head coaching role, again, my plans were very formulaic, very structured, um, and very much, we're going to do this, very linear, we're going to do this, this, and this, and by the end of the day, everyone will have achieved this. But when you've got such a diverse group like that, you can't, you simply cannot have that level of structure and formulaic proceduralism in your, in your planning. You have to have broader goals. And so taking one player um, to, let's say, taking one player um, and developing their tactical awareness of in-game, um, of batting in-game, um, that's going to take a lot longer with somebody potentially with an intellectual impairment than it's going to take a cricketer who's an amputee but has been playing the county game for, for a number of years. So I can't really think of any specific one because after my first session where nothing went right, I realised that, okay, well, we have to develop broader goals here. We have to have a number of different ways of achieving that. Um, and it wasn't necessarily breaking up the players into, right, all the lads with learning disabilities are going to come and do this. But it's just a question of seeing where you're at and what the different skill sets were. Um, and then having plan A, B, C, D and going to that. So it's kind of a, an ongoing process of trial and error. Yeah, that would be my different bus stops. So what bus stop are people at? How are you going to help them progress? Can we, can we put some people together to help each other progress a little bit? And yeah, and you get that in coaching anyway, right? That's, that's yeah. coaching in general, but it just becomes magnified in the disability context. And when you're not doing a good job as a coach, it becomes a lot more apparent in the para context. I wrote, it, you, you basically got a really exaggerated coaching problem where there's a really diverse, um, yeah, you, you just need to differentiate more than most coaches. Yeah, and the problem, the problem isn't them. The problem, they're just a set of athletes who want to get to where they want to get. The problem is the lack of flexibility, the lack of preparedness, the lack of knowledge and skills on you as a coach. And that can be quite confronting as a coach. Yeah, what, um, and how you, what type of ways are you supporting coaches? I mean, this is a, a, a pretty standard example for me of probably, you know, coaches that are, yeah, man, I love the way you put that. Just maybe it, the problem isn't there. The problem is, is rusty. And actually, I'm not that skillful enough. And also, it's quite an overwhelming thing for me to to admit that I'm not that good at this, and and to see that there's a 
there's a whole heap of learning I may have to do to be able to actually confront this problem. Yeah. What, um, so what level coach are you, Rusty? Uh, well, I don't like to use levels, uh, but I've what done my level four qualification. Okay. Uh, have you ever had any exposure to disability content in your coach education journey? Uh, not as part of my coach education, but I have uh, coached across lots of different domains. So, I mean, well, one of my one of my instant things that I would suggest most people do is is go and coach everything: boys, girls, men, women, disability, performance, development, the whole. You know, seventy kids, one kid. Um, yeah. Just go and have some of those experiences. But I guess the other part of this that you're able to do and I'm it definitely made me curious as well is like when you started you know having these kind of ouch moments I'm going to call your deep reflective moments ouch moments so who was there to help you that's the bit where I think lots of coaches are finding it hard is they don't have someone when the fog descends to help them and to support them and to help them make sense of things yeah and that was the same for me you know I was um, I was fortunate in that um, I was, again, I was in privileged environments. I was in performance environments where I had um, groups of coaches around me who were quite experienced and I could bounce ideas off. Um, but I, I mean, I was there, I was doing research at that point as well. So I was kind of diving into the literature and it's, it's just, it's the same thing across multiple different contexts, or sorry, or geographical contexts in the disability sports sector. There are a lack of coaches. There's a lack of support for those coaches, coaches like yourself who are keen and eager to get involved don't have any um, previous coach education that's going to provide them with that kind of initial tool set to get involved. And what that does, that, and again, a lot of coaches have talked to me about this in, in my research, there's this kind of fear of the unknown. And that's a major barrier. So if you've got a lack of coaches who are willing to step up and get involved in disability sport programs, then there's no disability sport program. And that is a huge barrier for people who are wanting to get fit, get active and get into sport. And I'll give you an example. So I'm doing research with Special Olympics New Zealand at the moment. And their average, they, all of their workforce are volunteer coaches. The average age of their coach is 55 and a half. And generally their parents or someone who's got into the sport, either because they've got a son or a daughter who has a disability, or they work in a related profession. So special educational needs, um, rehabilitation, occupational therapy, that kind of stuff. So volunteer coaches, aging workforce, there's a lack, complete lack of coach development support and training for them. Um, and, and what they're seeing is when those coaches step out of those roles, there's no pipeline of coaches to replace them. So those programs then fall over. And so, you know, you've got a swimming program with a coach who's been working for 15 years, they step away, you've got 30 kids who can no longer go swimming because there's no coach ready to work with them. And so for me, the problem is a structural thing, right? There's no we don't tend to expose coaches to the complexity of disability throughout our structured training programs. It relies on people who've got the motivation and the attitude like yourself to go and coach everyone. But what we're seeing is that doesn't happen. It takes, it takes the majority don't do it because disability is always reinforced as different. You know, if you want to take any kind of disability course, it's always something that's a bolt on. So you look at the UK coaching, um, inclusive coaching um, workshop really well-intentioned and really, really good that it's there. But why is that a standalone course? Why is that not integrated into your mainstream coach education pathways? You know, um, what we tend to find as well, I did some research on 
impairment specific coach education so you might go and learn how to coach athletes with a spinal cord injury or i might go and learn how to coach athletes with autism all that does is reinforce that they are different and therefore um you create these basically you create um, knowledge about coaching which is based on someone's impairment not based on the fact that they're an athlete who also has an additional set of needs um, so that can be quite problematic and so our coach education pathway just reinforces that disabled people are different and therefore that precludes inclusion because lack of coaches are not wanting to get involved you've got me inspired to get involved by the way um i would bring the average age down by only a little bit um, <laughs> but it's uh, and, and, and i'm going to ask you to signpost some stuff in a second but actually once again it's it's an exaggerated problem so lots of people don't coach because of the fear of the unknown and then you throw in something that you know that feels even more unknown to you then potentially that's a that's a really big cliff to jump off you know you yeah especially without support um so if you could signpost me towards some stuff that i, I could go and get involved in or or, or or, or look up today what what would you suggest in terms of um coach education or just yeah, coaching opportunities really yeah opportunities education yeah. Um, i know you're in new zealand but i, I think you know the lie of the land over here as well yeah well, i mean well the new zealand sector um is is really fragmented so there's there's a lot of stuff going on here in the disability sports sector and the government actually announced at the end of last year before everything went to hell that disability was a priority in terms of getting more people more active um but here you've got things like special olympics new zealand now special olympics is a uh, an international organization so special olympics gb um and they cater, they cater for athletes with um intellectual disabilities um down syndrome that kind of stuff and um generally it's more it's more inclusion based um, but they also have a bit of a pathway to go and compete internationally as well um I think in the UK we're, we're doing pretty well, to be honest. You know, a lot of a lot of governing bodies look after um, disability under their own kind of umbrella, whereas here um, disability is often separate from your mainstream national governing body, um, and so it's left to, to people like um, we have what's called parafeds here, which are regional organisations who cater specifically for um, athletes with physical impairments. Um, Special Olympics looks after all the athletes with, well, not all of them, but looks after athletes with intellectual impairments. Um, you have charities here like the Holberg Trust who look after um, athletes with, with physical impairments and various blind and deaf governing bodies. So what that looks like in the UK, um, I know that there are lots of different organisations that, again, look after um, various different impairments. So I know that there's like CP Sport, which is based in, I think, Nottingham. Um, the FA have got a really well-funded impairment-specific uh, program. Um, I don't know. I know that rugby have a blind program, but I don't know too much about it. Um, but it's just a, that's the thing. That's again a, a limitation of our disability sports sector is the lack of information that's out there for disabled people to access. You know, and who belongs in what spaces and what's accessible and who's going to coach them. Yeah, you've definitely made me aware that I don't know as much as I thought I did about uh, coaching and stuff. So you just punch me in the face, which is good news for me. I, I need I need that ouch moment. Um, what 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 other domains of coaching are you have you been feel like you've been having influence in as well? Um, 
so my my focus now so as soon as i moved to new zealand so that's two years ago um i actually i stepped away from the i had to step away from the england squad um which was kind of a bit sweet because i well the, the problem with doing your phd on on a sport you love is you end up falling out of love with it um so i kind of stepped away from cricket and stepped away from um that side um so i haven't when i moved here i haven't actually got involved in in much coaching since my focus now is on coach development is um and so i've done quite a lot of work with paralympics new zealand uh working with their their pathway to podium coaches um they're really experienced coaches like i say i'm doing research now with with special olympics new zealand um trying to basically trying to build some resources for coaches so people who want to get involved um and my research at the moment is all around well if you've got people who are reluctant to get involved and don't quite know what to do, can I give you something, some kind of resource that's going to tell you, you know, what the athletes expect, what they think good coaching is, um, some kind of guiding principles, if you like, that will just give you that little push to say, you know what, I've got this, give me a bit of confidence, let's get involved. Because again, the biggest learning experience is getting involved and doing it um, and then providing, you know, structured support from those experienced coaches who are currently working in that space um, to look after those coaches. So that's my focus at the moment. It's trying to build some traction and gain some traction around uh, disability and power coach education and what's going to be the optimal structure um, to actually get coaches involved. You're a, you're a behavioural ec ec economist. You are basically giving people little nudges to, uh, to get involved in some stuff when they a little bit like adverts that, that perhaps entice more females to apply for them than, than ordinarily would. What, what have you... Um, what have you noticed about coach development? What's the best stuff you've seen? What's the stuff you're going, wow, that's, that's pretty cool. I'm stealing that one. Um, I can't really answer that because I've not seen too much good stuff, to be honest with you. Um, Don't give me that. I evaluated a two-year um, autism-specific coach education course. And something that... Um, was really valuable for the coaches. So the course was developed with all the best intentions, right? It was developed in order to increase coaches' confidence and their competence to work with athletes with autism. Um, but the way that then looks, how you then deliver that, has got a real profound impact on what the coaches learn. Sounds simple. So these workshops were often one day or half a day, and they would always split up into theory and practical. The theory was always about, this is what autism is. These are some behavioral signs you can look for. These are some triggers. These are some things to watch out for, all about the impairment. The practical was then taking those triggers, those behaviors, and those, essentially those um, features of the impairment and saying, how are you going to react and how are you going to cope and how are you going to adapt to that? So what you're doing there, you're problematizing that person based on kind of generalized stereotypes about autism. And to bring a level of, and I'll notice this on, I think, I can't actually remember how, how many courses I um observed over those two years but on a on around 10 courses i noticed that in order to bring a level of realism while the um the coaches were peer coaching each other um the coaches would start acting autistic to bring a level of realism and so it's not you've got able-bodied people acting disabled in order to bring a level of contextual knowledge and realism and again i want to use air quotes for that to a pedagogical situation and all that does is provide a platform for stereotypes, for generalized understandings of impairment. Um, and that was a really crucial opportunity that a few times, that quite often was missed for the tutor to talk about and debunk those ideas. Um, and so 
On the one hand, I know that impairment-specific information has got a huge part to play in preparing coaches to work with athletes with impairments, you know, particularly in the performance space where, you know, the athletes function, how will, will have direct impacts on their training, their performance, their recovery. Of course, impairment-specific information is really important. It's also important for giving the coaches confidence to recognize the signs of um, or the effects of an impairment in a community space. So there's a place for that stuff. But when you base coaching all around that and neglect a whole heap of other stuff, that's when the problems for me start. And so um, I forgot the question. I went on a rant there. Sorry. That was a good rant. It was about coach development. Um, yeah. What have you missed? So, and, and you said uh, not that much good stuff. And here's one of my worst ones. <laughs> yeah so and again so we're still looking for um the research is trying to catch up in this space because we're trying to understand what best practices are we know that one of the best things you can do and you've already touched on this is chuck coaches into an environment with support with mentoring with reflection um, or reflective models of disability like i mentioned earlier and that can be really powerful for for highlighting those co those um those disabling aspects of that coach's practice um, coaches also really value being in a room together and sharing experiences and sharing ideas. Coaches also value generating an, an understanding of impairment. So those things work and those things are really valuable, but it's about taking those and infusing them into a mainstream coaching qualification. So that, so that disability doesn't become different, it doesn't become alien, it's not something to be avoided, it becomes normalized. Yeah, I guess lots of coach development would, would have that aspect of it whether it's in in this sphere or, or or elsewhere where we're coaching you know it's like coaching another adult who's pretending to be a, a 10 year old kid isn't the same as coaching a 10 year old kid and and as you say we've we we might give people some clues of some stuff to look for but actually yeah. it's it's just some clues because yeah. coaching is so much more than than a these this couple of things there might be some yeah. stuff we we bear in mind. I mean, what would, if you could redesign coach development, you've got <clears throat> infinite resources, um, not infinite, more resources. What, what, would, what would it look like? What do you think? Actually, this is, this would be a, a, a reasonable stab at it. So um, I'm working on a project at the moment with some colleagues back in the UK. Um, it's called the Paracoach Project. And um, we've just, we've just written a paper on, um, essentially what would coach education reform look like um, and we borrowed from the fields of physical education adaptive physical education special educational needs um, because all of these criticisms that I've talked about were were made back in the 50s in special educational needs and in education this idea that a bolt-on teacher education course doesn't actually prepare teachers to work with disabled disabled people it's the same in coaching so what would a, an ideal situation look like? What would an ideal pathway look like? Um, so we talk about an infusion approach. So um, I think a lot of the discourse now around coach development is around um, in-situ support, um, mentoring, sharing best practices. Um, on, online also has a big part to play, particularly um, around the procedural stuff around disability sport. So understanding aspects of classification, um, uh, particularly in Special Olympics where you the rules of Special Olympics are quite different so um, coaches take refresher courses online to learn the rules and regulations of Special Olympics. Um, I think that impairment specific information and information from healthcare providers, social uh, care 
um, sports science and medicine is really, really um, valuable. So I, so I delivered a session with a guy called Rod Corbin, who's a sports psychologist in Paralympics New Zealand, and we co-delivered a session together. And it was really powerful because he could talk about the impact of an intellectual impairment on the player's cognitive functioning, their information processing, and I could then link that to their coach's practice. And together that worked really nicely. Um, I would integrate models of disability um, as a, again, as a reflective tool. Um, and I would really build in some carefully structured um, pedagogical experiences you know, um, in situ, if you like. Uh, but that's what I'm trying to work towards, Rusty. I'm trying to get, I'm trying to get a governing body to do so. You know, let's, can we build something together and can we evaluate it and can we see what's going to work? Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, infinite resources might be your limiting factor, but I definitely think lots more of that stuff you're talking about is possible. Even, even I mean, two that I wrote down actually, and just recently did a, um, a podcast with Brendan Cropley, a, a reflection. So actually, you know, what that looks like or feels like and how that works would be something I'm, I'm definitely keen for you to talk about. And then also the integration of sports psychology, which, you know, when you've got NGBs that, you know, many of whom don't, you know, just it, lots of the courses just aren't that psychologically informed. So even just yeah. the ability to, as you said, to, to, to co-deliver with a sports psych and that person to bring to life the impact of coaching is, is pretty powerful. What are your, what are your thoughts just on those two areas alone and, and coach development? Well, the integration of the, of the disciplines is really important, you know, so I, I used to be a member of the Peter Harrison Centre at Loughborough, which is a disability research centre. And they were, they were awesome at the sports science and medicine aspect of parasport. They had a bank of evidence around this is how um, a player, an athlete's impairment will impact on their performance, their recovery and their functioning. What's then missing is that mechanism to integrate that into coach education and coaching practice. And that's kind of that's where I, I was sitting before I moved over here. Um, and so it's not just sports psychology, it's, it's understanding the effects of an impairment without problematizing that athlete, but understanding what the effects are for you as a coach, your planning cycle, the way that you structure practice, the way that you communicate with your athletes. Um, that's the important part, it's that translation of that information into coaching practice. Give me some, give me some examples that, <clears throat> that when you co-delivered, that, that the psych brought to life that would be helpful for coaches to understand. So we, we were able to bridge our, my own experiences. So my experiences of working with the, the learning disability squad with um, his understanding of um, an intellectual impairment. So we, we could talk about the idea of building clear and consistent routines, embedding messages um, and revisiting skills over time. So what you tend to find um, with, depending on the severity of an intellectual impairment, but skill development is a very much a decelerated process. So that has clear implications for the way that you plan, the way that you deliver your sessions, what sessions you deliver. So I was able to give coaches, um, not sports specific examples, because I, you know, I'd never dream of telling you how to coach in your rugby setting. But you know, if, you've got, if you've got a decelerated skill acquisition process or a skill learning process, how can you then elongate your plans to ensure that you're providing maximal practice time for the, for the athletes to essentially get to where you want them to get to? Um, so that was really valuable, but we were fortunate, you know, we had a, this is with Paralympics coaches, you know, they were, they've been in the, in the field for 20 years, some of them, 
So for, for many of them, they were just like, yeah, tell me something new. Um, so for, for me, I think the, the value is for those coaches who had no exposure to disability um, and given them that level of base knowledge or confidence to get involved. Yeah, no, I'm definitely hanging out with Sykes as much as possible. Um, they're really expensive, so that's why I try and befriend them. But uh, don't let them know. Um, <clears throat> what about reflection? Where's I mean, you've spoken about it a lot from from your point of view as well, and some some moments around that. Where would that? How would that look in your perfect coach development world? Um, so we talk about. So I've talked about those two models the medical and the social model. There's a third one um, called the social relational model. And the social relational model really focuses on the social relationships between coaches and the athletes and the context that you're in. And essentially the social relational model talks about, yes, we understand that um, an impairment can of course have an impact on the way that somebody functions in their daily life. And that's called an impairment effect. But the social relational model also recognizes this social relationships around you that can disable you. So if you've got one hand and I go and try to shake your hand in that moment, my interaction is disabling you because of my normative assumptions. So what I would do, I would start and I would, I'm thinking about this, this kind of relational mapping exercise where you would, you try and you create a map of who your athletes are, what sort of impairments that, that are, that are in your context, what those potential effects are, what you've seen, and then start thinking about, well, what can I do as a coach that's non-disabling? Um, and therefore you start to integrate models of disability into a reflective process. Um, so yeah, that's, that's where I would start. I have to say like a lot of these ideas, I'm literally shooting off the hip because we've got no evidence to say that they work. Um, and that's what the, the entire next, next stage of my career is about, is trying to make these ideas usable and feasible in a coach development context um and unfortunately i don't at the moment i don't have a silver bullet i don't have a this is this is the gold standard this is what we should do um are there any other good ideas that you're shooting off the hip on only because i'm <clears throat> i mean i'm reflecting now on how often coaches would reflect upon a session based upon the the social relation so that actually the the interactions they have with people and whether or not those interactions were um, enabling or, 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 or transformate or even transformational, you know, that, yeah. that would be a, a good, um, a good reflection, wouldn't it? What's the, what's the 12 most um, transformational uh, moments that happened in that session between you and another human being would be a, would be a good start point for me. I'm sure it would be a cool session if you could, if you could get to 12. Yeah, well, absolutely. Um, and oh, another thing that I meant to say as well, you know, a lot of coaches um, worry about the language that they use, you know, and they're not aware or they're unaware or not willing to engage with debates around language. You know, do you say disabled person? Do you say person with a disability, person with impairment? Um, and again, you know, a lot of a lot of these debates can be put to bed when you just ask that person that you're working with, um, ask that athlete, you know, how, how should I refer to you? How, you know, what's what's your name? Can I call you your name? Yeah, I mean, that would be same again. I mean, across all, you know, how often do we ask people those type of questions? You know, what would you, what would be an awesome session for you today? What can I help yeah. you with? How can I yeah. support you? What and that's why, so I talked a little while ago um, about um, the importance of drawing on multiple stakeholders in, in disability sports. So in the, you know, the, the important focus point is you and the athlete and creating a, an open, safe dialogue between the two of you. 
but there's you know disabled people tend to belong to lots of different fields and arenas at the same time you know education social care healthcare. you know you can link in and you can tap into a lot of expertise across those different fields you know if they've got a social care worker um doctors um, parents are a huge source of knowledge for coaches to get involved to, to speak to uh, and i can't encourage that enough the parents um that i've engaged with over the last sort of five years or so of coaching in, in that um, context have been so helpful and so valuable in providing those little nuggets um, to help you connect with that with their son or daughter. Nice. And 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 if people want to tap into your expertise, and by the way, I'm I'm I've actually while we've been talking, I've been getting up my presentation from from the conference and checking that I did okay because I was like I was quite pleased that I went before you and not after you. Um, if people, <laughs> I think I've got some of the stuff. Um, if, good. if people wanted to uh, to touch base with you or connect with you, where would where would be the place to, to find you? I'm always up for a chat on Twitter. Um, so you can get. I think I'm at Rob Townsend PhD on there. I'm happy to take emails as well. You know, um, it's difficult obviously because I'm on the other side of the world. I couldn't get further away if I tried. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm always happy to take. Um, any kind of dialogue with, with coaches or coach developers. Um, and the point is now we're at a kind of critical moment, uh, particularly post COVID because, um, you know, a lot of governing bodies now are struggling for funding, you know, restructures, job losses. And so it's very easy to cut disability programs, but it's probably a, more important than ever um, that we try and endeavor to keep disabled people active. Um, and so, uh, you know, disability should be a, a priority for a lot of these organizations. Um, but it's about, you know, you can't have a, you can't have a program without a coach. Um, and so I, I remember speaking to a coach working for, who worked for Parapet Auckland. Um, he was an athletics coach. And he was saying that, you know, without a coach, these athletes don't have an opportunity to grow. Um, and I thought that was really powerful because you need that coach to take that step and say, yeah, look, let's work together. Let's do this. And, and provide that athlete with the opportunity to grow and to, to try and reach their potential, whatever that might be. You know, that might just be getting active three times a week, or that might be winning a Paralympic medal. It doesn't matter. If that's their potential, that's their potential. Mate, I'm inspired. Thanks so much for your time. I hope that, uh, and, I mean, lots of the stuff we've spoken about is my, is my concern that NGBs will cut costs around coach development, around disability, and around psychology. I, I already know that in some organisations, lots of that, well, we've already mentioned the FA, and the FA of and definitely uh, cuts around the coach development and the psychology stuff. Um, yeah, it's going to be tough times. And I think what you said at the end is critical. I mean, just for anyone, really, just that stepping in as a coach and helping people grow in any domain is like, it's definitely the most rewarding thing for them. It's possibly one of the most rewarding things you'll ever do as well. So, uh, mate, look, thanks so much for your time. It was everything that Ed Hall promised it would be. Um, He's a good man. He owes me a whiskey. <laughs> right, have a have a great evening in New Zealand, and we'll uh, we'll catch up soon. Yeah, thanks very much for the invite. Good chatting. Cheers, mate. Cheers.